This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. You don't need to be a farmer to know that crops need certain things to grow. They need sunlight and water, and, and they need nutrient-rich soil. What you might not have realized, though, is that plants have a microbiome that they are also reliant upon. Just like humans, they carry on the inside and the outside of their anatomy a lot of microorganisms. And just like us, they're reliant on these microorganisms to succeed. In a new study published in the journal Nature Scientific Reports, researchers at Utah State University analyzed what happens when they put a little extra stress on one of the bacterial species known to be beneficial to wheat growth. And the result is a better informed way of thinking about what crops need to survive and to thrive. And that in turn has prompted a conversation about the future of fertilizers. Joining me today to talk about this study are two of the paper's authors, Elizabeth Varhees is an associate professor of biological engineering at Utah State University. She first joined us back in 2018 to talk about her research on a new device for stressing in vitro cells. And I'm so pleased to have her back. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. And with us for the first time on Undisciplined is David Britt, a professor of biological engineering, also at Utah State University where he studies nanoparticles, biofilms, molecular imprinting, and agriculture. David Britt, I'm glad you could join us. Thanks for having me, Matthew. All right, so at some point in the future, and, and I do think it's some point in the near future, we're probably not going to have to explain that bacteria can be beneficial. Um, you know, But microbes over time have sort of garnered a lot of human contempt, and Sometimes that's been well-deserved. So I guess we still have some work to do in this area. And so we should probably we should probably begin by saying bacteria isn't always bad. David, can you can you unpack that for us? Yeah, sure. You know, and I think it speaks to where a lot of us start in our education. And my background was in biomedical engineering. And so yeah. we tended to look at bacteria as something that we didn't want to find on an implant material or uh, something such as a, a trach tube, right? We'd see all sorts of bacteria growing on trachea tubes, um, collaborations with the University of Utah School of Medicine. And we ask, how can we prevent this from happening and causing infection in patients? But the great thing about being at the land-grant university is I uh, get to collaborate with people in biology and uh, a colleague, uh, Professor Ann Anderson from biology, started introducing me to the beneficial aspects of microbes in soil and in particular, this one soil microbe that she isolated called Pseudomonas chloroethus 06 that, uh, that we're going to talk about today. And so like this bacteria in particular, but a lot of bacteria actually, we're finding more and more positive uses for not just in soil fertilizers. I mean, like all across the spectrum of science. This is true, right? Um, we see a lot of probiotics is a key term and microbiome, another term that you may not have heard too much about 10 years ago, and even the term biofilm. And so absolutely, right? Each of us carries four pounds of bacteria on our body and uh, the majority of it uh, are good, right? We need bacteria on our skin, in our guts, all over, right? It's called our second genome and we have more bacteria cells uh, than we do our own uh, cells. And, and the same goes for soil. 
where the numbers are even more dramatic, right? In a, like a teaspoon of soil, there's something like 10 to the ninth bacteria, but only a select number of those actually can be coaxed out of their kind of a quiet state and into a, a stage where they colonize plants and can benefit the plants. Okay, so the other thing we need to address, sort of in likewise fashion, is that while we often think about stress as being bad, and, and in particular as being bad for crops, like in terms of the stress that comes from a lack of water or the stress that comes from too much heat, the reality is that stress isn't a uniformly bad thing. So just like bacteria isn't always bad, stress isn't either. Elizabeth, stress can be really good, really positive, right? Yeah, it's it's interesting that you mentioned my previous work where I looked at stress, and that was mechanical stress. And so that was trying to move our our cells in a certain way to see how they respond. And this is similar to that. And what we notice is that the stress actually allows the bacteria and the plant to have a better relationship, to have more of that uh, protection that Dave was talking about previously. And, and to do this, you have to stress the bacterium out a little bit. Let, we're going to get to that in a minute, but let's talk about this little guy that you focused on in this study. Um, and David, you said the name earlier. I'm almost certain to still butcher this. Sodomanus chlororhapis. Am I anywhere close? Yeah, it's called Pseudomonas, and it's out of, uh, you know, the, this you know, genus and species designation that you learned about in seventh grade biology. And so uh, Pseudomonads are, are a type of bacteria that we often associate with infections in humans present in the lungs of cystic fibrosis patients. They form strong biofilms, and those are bad situations, right, where we see these Pseudomonads forming. But in the soil, Pseudomonas chlorophyphus is just one of billions of bacteria that was coaxed out of the soil on dryland uh, wheat. And so you kind of go into a situation, just that term dryland wheat farming already tells you that this is um, wheat that's growing in a, an environment where you're relying on rainfall and harsh conditions. And so it makes sense that over the hundreds of years of agriculture, that some evolution is taking place in the soil where the relationship between wheat and bacteria is evolving. And uh, through some you know, selective studies 20 years ago, my colleague Ann Anderson and uh, some of her students and other colleagues were able to isolate this particular bacteria that is just a tremendous biofilm forming bacteria that colonizes the wheat roots. They see that under drought stress, this leads to closing of the stomata on the leaves themselves. So those are kind of the little pores that allow CO2 in and oxygen out. But it also allows water to leave the plant, right? It's, the, it's one of the um, hazards of breathing, of, of respiration, is you lose moisture. And in doing that, the plants succumb to drought stress. And so this particular bacteria can actually communicate through the roots and tell the plant what to do with its uh, stomata in the leaf tissue. So it's a fascinating relationship. So the idea here with it, with this particular bacterium is to get it to release more what are called outer membrane vesicles. And, and maybe a good way to describe these vesicles is these are bacterial secretions that turn out to have a lot of benefits in a lot of different organisms. These are like superpowered bacterial snot. And you said, okay, let's put some stress on these bacteria and see if we can get them to produce some more of this super snot. How do you stress out a bacterium? 
Uh, I think, you know, same way that Elizabeth stressed out some of those muscle cells that she's done research on, right? Um, we have external energy. In her case, she's used radiation, ionizing radiation. Um, in our case, we use uh, something similar to that that generates reactive oxygen species, right? ROS. And so whenever you hear about, you know, taking a nutraceutical a supplement to protect you against reactive oxygen species, that's what we're talking about. And so by having a limited number of stressors, some reactive oxygen species, it, it can stimulate the microbe to produce more of this, what you call SNOT, we call extra polymeric substance, EPS. And a, a component of that EPS is the outer membrane vesicle. And a good way to think of these are tiny balloons that the bacteria is releasing in, you know, thousands of these little lipid balloons going out and containing messages in them. So the bacteria is sending out all this information and it's, it's not free. It's costing the bacteria something to produce all these. And so there has to be some reasoning. And one of the things we know is the bacteria can use this to signal to fellow bacteria to say, hey, there's a lot of us around. And through a process called quorum sensing, they start to change their lifestyle from kind of this bachelor lifestyle, uh, free floating, and settle down and form a biofilm, a big community. And that's where there's protection in numbers. There's protection through this barrier aspect of the extra polymeric substance. And then there's this communication aspect of what are these OMVs doing? And this is where Elizabeth's expertise was so vital because we knew our bacteria were producing these small vesicles. And when we say small, they're on the order of less than 100 nanometers across, right? So billionth of an inch kind of um, dimensions. And we see them produced under baseline conditions when the bacteria just seem to be hanging out, as well as when we stress them uh, with copper oxide nanoparticles, which is also used as a fungicide and fertilizer. And then even when we give it a little hydrogen peroxide, which everyone's familiar with is just a, a mouth rinse or put it on your cuts and it bubbles up. Well, a little bit of that, you know, is also something that can stimulate the bacteria. So if you don't kill it, uh, you can make it stronger. And that's what we're interested in. And Elizabeth, this is all happening at the molecular scale. So measurement is hard. This is where a specialized chemical analysis technique comes in. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we started thinking about this collaboration, you know, we were thinking, what are the differences when the bacteria is stressed? How do the OMVs change? And then we started to list all the different assays that we might need. And it just, the list became, it, it was ridiculous. It would take so much time, so many resources. And one of my expertise is in using Raman spectroscopy, which is a light-based technique where we shine light at samples at a really specific wavelength. And then we see how the samples respond. So we see what type of light is scattered back. And because this is a well-defined technique, we know that when we see light that's scattered back at a certain wavelength, that that usually corresponds to an increase in nucleic acids or an increase in proteins. And so with all the different samples that we had, with the bacteria stressed and unstressed and the different OMVs, the outer membrane vesicles that were released, we were able to use our technology to really figure out what might be going on at that molecular level. And this was, this was a workaround because you weren't going to be able to do, well, I mean, maybe you could have done all those assays, but it was going to cost a lot and it was yeah. going to take a lot of time. Yeah. And we would have said protein X was increased by 6%. And what, how does that help necessarily? Maybe that may, maybe somebody's interested in that, but that doesn't give you like the full picture. And so by using the spectroscopic technique, 
we could give a better, fuller, a greater understanding of what's happening in these different scenarios. Is this one of those situations where the solution was sort of just sitting there or did it take <laughs> a lot of, you know, like a, a lot of times I think we do things a certain way because we've always done things a certain way. And we do things in a save because we've always done things in that way. Was it patently obvious to you? I mean, obviously you have an expertise in this, or is this something that had been talked about for a while in other applications? How did you come to this solution? I think for me, I, I have a similar background to Dave where I have a biomedical engineering background and I have been here since 2013. And it took me a really long time to think about using Raman spectroscopy for agricultural applications. So even though Dave and I knew about each other's research, and I have Raman instrumentation all throughout my lab, it did take a little bit of like, wait, what are you trying to do? I think I can help you with that. And so then we started to have meetings and conversations. And Cynthia Hansen, who's also an author on this paper, was my PhD student. And so it took, it took a lot of time for us to get to the point where this was clearly the obvious solution, but it wasn't something that we came up with easily, you know? So now we apply this, which is basically a measurement technique. We apply this to this problem. And what do we find? What is happening? What are the stressors that create these bacterium, that create the conditions in which these bacterium are creating these OMVs, which is potentially so helpful for crops? As Elizabeth says, you know, a lot of times research, it, it takes some time for it to converge on a, on a solution. And you know, my master's student at the time, uh, Matthew Potter, who's also a co-author on this, was looking at copper oxide nanoparticle interactions with wheat and wheat colonized by this beneficial microbe, PCO6. And one of the things we noticed is that the wheat, when uh, in the presence of the copper oxide nanoparticles, was more upright during drought stress. And through some fluorescence microscopy and staining, we were able to see that there was more lignification occurring. And so this is kind of structural material in the plant. So it could prevent the wheat from undergoing a, a wilting stage and, and into a condition called lodging where it just tips over. So there, there's obvious interactions where the copper oxide uh, nanoparticles can benefit the, the wheat, right? And, and this isn't totally new, but investigating it through nano copper delivery was something uh, a little bit new. And so we're in this nano realm. We've had funding from USDA and National Science Foundation to, to study these uh, nano interactions in agriculture. But we kept thinking, what's happening to the microbiome, to the bacteria colonizing the wheat? And so that's where, as we would look, you know, using high resolution microscopy methods, see that these bacteria are just pouring out all these little vesicles, these balloons going out. And that costs a lot of energy. And we wondered what's inside of these, what's the chemistry? And that's where we you know, started looking at what we call these biochemical assays that Elizabeth brought up that are expensive in terms of student time to, to run the assays and also the cost of the assays. So that's where you know it's beneficial to have a scientist, even with disparate areas of research in the same building, same departments, and, and talk about what each of us are doing. And that's when um, we, we kind of put this collaboration together. Elizabeth, David just mentioned this idea of these disparate expertises coming together. And I think this is something that is maybe lost outside of you know, scientific communities, which really understand that within a specialty, there are all these subspecialties, and then there are sub-subspecialties, and so on and so forth. And you can be in an office right next to someone 
and your business card can say the exact same thing as theirs, but you may be speaking in two different languages. You had to pick up a, a language of sorts in order to participate in this project, and I'm sure vice versa for all the other researchers involved, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the initial meetings were me and Cindy would come in and Cynthia Hansen would come in with our ramen expertise and just listen to Dave and Matthew Potter talk about similar questions. What you're asking, are these bacteria beneficial? What are outer membrane vesicles? And then I think on the reverse, when we talked about what ramen is and then how we might try to analyze the spectra that we got using our instrumentation, there was a lot of learning on that side. And now I think both of us can rely on each other and then each other's students to work in this community. And so it's fascinating. And it, Dave said it, it took a long time, but now we have, you know, we've planted a flag in this collaborative world of the spectroscopy and agricultural applications. And yeah, I'm just, I'm excited because this is like a whole new area of what I had not considered and definitely things that I had not known before. This is important because the implications here, they're pretty vast. They're very fascinating. Let's talk first about what this might mean for building smarter fertilizers. How does the process that you went through to understand this bacterium, its secretions, those secretions affect on wheat and the way to measure that, how does that all sort of come together as we think about, okay, now we're going to apply this, not just potentially to wheat, but to other crops as well? Yeah, so I think you're you're getting into a, you know, sustainability. We're overusing fertilizers, right? And it's detrimental as it runs off in waterways and leads to a process called eutrophication and we get dead zones. You know, we deplete oxygen from the waters because we put so much nitrogen in there that um you know, we're killing fish species. So what do we do? You know, you look back to nature and what's it been doing all along? And the bacteria, it's like in our own bodies, they serve a beneficial role. And our bodies tend to select for a microbiome. Um, you can get your own genome, your second genome uh, tested in your gut. And we see that it varies from location to location, depending on what you eat. And it has roles varying into just mental uh, health is now attributed in part to what bacteria colonize your guts. And so it, it's the same story in agriculture. And so we now ask the question, again, you have to start somewhere. So we focus on this model bacterium, Pseudomonas chloroaphis 6 that we know a lot about. But the great thing about being a research institution with a, an outreach and land-grant mission is we get to bring students in. And I've had a high school student working in the lab, Gary Jean, who has isolated additional microbes from three different soils around the valley. Two of them are agricultural soils. One's up in a high mountain meadow, and not surprisingly, the, the bacteria from the agricultural soils have a different interaction and a more perhaps beneficial interaction with the wheat that he tested for his high school research and actually submitted for a publication. So absolutely, it's about nurturing the bacteria that are already in the soil, about trying to reduce application of external synthetic fertilizers to the, to the amount we can and use um, sustainable, quote, green agricultural approaches. And these outer membrane vesicles, these aren't just a product of one kind of bacterium, as, as you say. They're also not just in plants. They're a product that is released in very small quantities, for instance, during the wellness to cancer transitions in, in human cells. 
But again, this is happening at very small scales. So having a method like the one you used to assess the subtle changes in the bacterium in these wheat crops, this same method could potentially help us better detect really early cancer warning signs. Is that right, Elizabeth? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think for me, one of the biggest takeaways from this was that even though the outer membrane vesicles were coming from the bacteria, they have a very different Raman specter associated with them. And so that was kind of like, no, that can't, that can't be right. Let's go back and do that again, because if it's coming from it, shouldn't it look the same? But the reason is because the bacteria is choosing how to package these outer membrane vesicles. And so similarly, we have extracellular vesicles in our body, and we use them in normal situations, but they are also been known to be used in disease-like situations, precancerous situations. And so if we could do similar work where we could try to understand why cells end up producing extracellular vesicles and then try to figure out what their role is, either downstream or in signaling processing, that would be a benefit to better understand why diseases occur and then potentially be able to diagnose them at an earlier stage. So if this is something that happens early on in the process of cancer or any other disease, then we could say, okay, I see extracellular vesicles that are being expressed by these cells, now that I see them in the bloodstream or in saliva, maybe I can now start some sort of treatment processes earlier. And so that will help with, you know, all sorts of mortality and those types of figures. So this is where things, well, this is where things kind of get tough because on the one hand, you've got cancer research, which is unquestionably important. And on the other hand, we've got research that could help us better develop crops that are, you know, more tolerant to the stresses that we're going to be facing under climate warming, which is unquestionably important. But, you know, there's a small number of you and there's only a small number of hours in the day. So how do you decide what direction to take this research next? Elizabeth, let's start with you. I like to think of things as incrementally adding to general knowledge. And so right now, I don't have access to patients who have cancer or cancerous cells or an animal model of cancer, but I do have access to these bacteria and the resources and the collaborators needed to better understand why these bacteria might exhibit certain properties. And then I have the expertise to figure out what those changes might be. And so from my point of view, I would like to continue with this research because that's where my expertise and current passions lie. But by contributing to that fundamental knowledge base, somebody who is doing cancer research and is saying, I wonder what Raman spectroscopy can do, or why are these cancer cells early on releasing these balloons to do this cell signaling? And then they come across this paper and they go, oh, wow, look at that. That's really similar in a bacteria cell. And so I like to think of our contribution as potentially just, it sounds kind of narrow and in this one area, but could have a significant impact well outside our own research areas. And David, for you, because you could take this research in a bunch of different directions, what's the next step? What's the next question you want to answer? 
Yeah, Matt, that's always, uh, you know, the questions that we put to our students who are working on this. And, and we like to think broadly and ask a lot of questions, review the scientific literature. And then the communication is key to express what we're doing through publications, showing that we have students working on it. And, and they're the ones, you know, in the lab on the front lines doing this. And where do we go next? It depends on the questions we ask and looking at the outcomes we can predict. But I certainly am passionate about addressing the problem of sustainable agriculture and growing crops in, in varied climates. And we're actually going to run a 10-week research experience for undergraduates this summer. So we're bringing 10 stellar undergraduates, actually 12 now, from all around the country. And they get to come into our labs and explore these fundamental ideas where we say, what would you do in 10 weeks if we give you access to some Raman spectroscopy? We show you these bacteria. Here are the plants. What can you do? Because, you know, after a certain age, I, I've lost all my creativity. I count on these students to inspire me. So it's important to guide the next generation, give them the tools, and then open your lab to them and say, you know, here's a place for you to explore ideas and find answers. And, uh, you know, we've left you a world that needs a lot of uh, problem solving. So here, have at it. We'll help on the sides. That's David Britt, professor of biological engineering at Utah State University. David, thank you. Oh, thanks for having me, Matthew. It was a pleasure. Also joining us today was Elizabeth Varhees. She's an associate professor of biological engineering at Utah State University. Elizabeth, it was great to chat with you again. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>